All right, everybody, you can return to your seats. We're going to get started. We're going to be reading this morning from Isaiah chapter 11, so we can continue these conversations during the coffee hour after the service. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity. For the meek of the earth, and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them, the cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hello, my name is Crawford Stevener, as Kevin uh, introduced me. If you haven't met me, uh, my wife Rachel and I have been here for a number of years. We have four daughters, we're members of Grace, and uh, I'm the RUF campus minister at Stanford University. We just finished week one back on campus after 19 months of living in exile on Zoom, and so I'm excited to be back uh, on campus. And um, if you want to know more about our ministry, you know, there's a lot of New people and visitors at our church after the pandemic. I don't, can't say after the pandemic yet, but at this current phase. Uh, my email's in the bulletin under the college ministries. Shoot me an email. I'd love to tell you how to, to pray for our ministry, how to support us, what that looks like for us on campus. But that's, that's not why we're here this morning. We're here to receive a, a word from the living God. So let me pray, and then we'll begin. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we, we thank you that you've given us your word uh, that you promise is is powerful and it's sharp like a two-edged sword. And when we experience your word by your spirit, we get, we come away changed. You you say your word doesn't come back to you empty or void, but always accomplishes its purposes. So we we pray that that will happen to us this morning as we gather uh, under the under the name of Jesus, the one true God. And it's in His name we pray. Amen. Uh, since we're taking a break from our sermon series in the Gospel of Luke, I want to give you a little bit of background context and what's happening in the prophetic passage of scripture that Arya just read from us uh, from the book of Isaiah. Uh, there's, a, there's a king in Judah during this time in Isaiah named King Ahaz, and he's facing a geopolitical crisis where there's other countries that are rising in power bordering him, and they're threatening to invade Judah and uh, to potentially destroy the country. And there's this, this idea, this, this uh, concept in his mind thinking, maybe I should go in league with Assyria, this other neighboring country that doesn't trust in God. And maybe I should uh, make an ally or an alliance with them, and then we can sort of beef up our army and be strong. And it, it sounded like a good idea. But God 
sent Isaiah the prophet to tell King Ahaz, no, I don't want you building a coalition with Assyria. I want you to trust me as, as your God, and, and I will protect you. This all happens in chapter 7 in Isaiah before our passage this morning. So does King Ahaz listen to God? No, of course he doesn't. Uh, he does uh, probably what all of the kings and almost all the kings in the history of the Bible have done over and over and over again. Instead of listening to God, uh, they want to listen to themselves and do things their own way. And you see this as we, as we read about kings in the Bible. If you've made it to that section of the Old Testament that feels a bit repetitive in the Chronicles and in the Kings, you see this pattern emerging over and over and over again. There are these kings, and uh, this clear pattern emerges that we see the frailty and the folly and the futility of earthly kings and earthly kingdoms compared to the one true king, the King of Kings, the Messiah, uh, Christ the King, and his coming kingdom. And it's in that context that we get this prophecy in Isaiah chapter 11. This is beautiful picture of what a better king and a better kingdom will look like. Uh, Isaiah the prophet comes with some bad news for the people of God at first. Uh, there are going to be dark days ahead for the people of God. They're, they're going to experience grief and loss judgment and despair, but in the midst of this, this cycle of doom, he puts out this, this word of hope, of encouragement, uh, of promise and expectation. And that hope and promise and expectation is tied to a person. This is very important in Christianity. It's very important to the Christian story that, that our reason as, as Christians, if, any, if, you're, if you're here and you follow Jesus, our reason for hope, our reason for optimism, our reason for expecting uh, good things are around the corner or that joy will come on the other side of sorrow, the reason we believe in resurrection after death, that the reason we think these things are not just our, our hopes or our intentions or a theory, but they are, they are attached to the coming of a king named Jesus, and we expect him to come because God says he will. God says he will come, and he says what he's like. And that's what we're getting this, this picture of in Isaiah chapter 11. So this morning, I want you to see the nature of a king and the nature of his kingdom. Those are going to be the two broad points we, we work through. Now, of course, there are a lot of reasons uh, why you and I don't want to trust a king, why we would have no interest in serving a king. Uh, we don't trust that someone else uh, knows what's best for us. We may value our own personal freedoms, whether it be financial or moral or some other version that you want to do what you want to do with your life. You don't want to yield your will to the ideas of this ruler above you. Uh, we think we might do a better job governing ourselves. And uh, in case you've missed this, this has like been kind of a thing in American history. Uh, like Lynn manuel Miranda, I think, put it this way in, in Hamilton uh, during the cabinet battles. He says, look, when Britain taxed our tea, we got frisky. What do you think is going to happen when they tax our whiskey? All right, this is Thomas Jefferson talking in the, in the Hamilton um, battles. There, there's this intrinsic sort of American ideal, whether or not you you're come from this country or not, uh, that's I don't want someone else ruling over me. Yet, in the Bible, Christianity is fundamentally about serving a king and participating in a kingdom. And ultimately, every knee will bow before Jesus Christ. And this might feel upsetting to you. This may feel sort of violating to you. And it's, I understand that because it's for good reason, because kings throughout history have not had the best reputation. Kings are usually takers, not givers. Uh, they usually start wars. They don't establish peace. Uh, they extort the poor. 
They don't execute justice. But we here get a picture of a different kind of king, of a totally different character in chapter 11 of Isaiah. So let's first look at the nature of the king. Uh, Verse 1, if you want to look in your little handout there, we've got the passage in front of you. Uh, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Uh, the king that is coming is from the line of David. The, the shoot from the stump of Jesse is a genealogical statement. Uh, there's a reason for these long genealogies that you come across in the Bible, and you wonder, why, why couldn't they have shortened this a little bit? Um, they're, they're proving uh, that there's actually a, a history of God's people, and the Messiah is coming from this long line of God's people. He's going to fulfill God's word and the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. Uh, this, is, this is showing that, that he will have all of the proper qualifications needed to be the type of ruler you would want to follow. Uh, you look in verse 2, it says, the spirit of wisdom and understanding so that this king can, can make proper judgments and, and lead well. He will have the spirit of counsel and might, which means he'll have this kind of military strength uh, and, and the strategy to know where to go and where to lead. He'll have the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He's divinely appointed with a divine mission. This king has, has wisdom, strength, and mission. And so when Jesus is finally established as king, that we will have a king that is full of wisdom and full of justice. And what this means for us is that there will be no more false trials. There will be nobody else left uh, unjustly lingering on death row. Brian Stevenson and Montgomery's Equal Justice Initiative and organizations like this will be happily disbanded. Labor unions, advocacy groups, political lobbyists, these, these groups, these justice-oriented NGOs will, will no longer be needed because justice will be established. And not only will, will peace and justice be established, but we have a king here pictured that will be full of strength and action might be easy to kind of skip over verse 4. It's like all these nice things about this king. And then it's like, and he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and the breath of his lips he will destroy the wicked. You're like, okay. Um, we, are, we are now looking at a, a full-oared picture of what a ruler might look like. Because Jesus is coming, this is really important, evil will not win. And this picture of Jesus as a, as a divine warrior is, some, is, a, is a picture that's given throughout the scriptures And again, this might kind of ruffle some of our sensibilities, but it has incredible relevance to making sense of evil and suffering and injustice in our world and in our own lives. Because the Bible is very honest about the brutality of war and the brokenness of humanity and the injustice that occurs. But the Bible also is very clear that that evil has an expiration date. And we, we try to remind this to our children when we read a book or watch a movie that frightens them or scares them. There's an evil character in it. We have this little refrain. We tell them to remember that, that good defeats evil. And in a lot of movies, uh, this little narrative of, of the, you know, there's, there's a bad guy, there's a crisis, and then good wins in the end. We'll sort of, you know, like, like those of you who like to read the last page of the novel early. I don't understand you people, but I respect you. Uh, we, tell our, we tell our children, you know, good's going to win in the end. This is going to work out in the end. And that's really an echo of a bigger story that's happening in Christianity. Good defeats evil. And this is not just a hope where we're crossing our fingers or we're telling ourselves happy thoughts, but this is a promise in the scriptures. This is a prophecy. It's a statement of faith. And, and other religions don't have this same way of dealing with evil. Uh, there are some you know, Eastern traditions that, that look at good and evil as a sort of 
yin and yang, or, or a balance, or they're, they're sort of contrasting one another. They're, they're holding each other in tension and harmony. And wherever there is good, there will also be evil. We have to kind of just learn to live with it. But that's not the case in Christianity. There is a coming king that says evil and death will be swallowed up by the breath of his lips. That there's a good king coming who will crush evil beneath his feet. That righteousness and justice and goodness and peace will be established to the ends of the earth. Why wouldn't you want to follow this sort of king? You think about what type of people you listen to, uh, what podcasts you enjoy. Uh, think, about, think about what makes a good coach. Right? Maybe you have a corporate coach. Maybe she's great because she, she's awesome at guiding executives like you. She's got good strategies and techniques. She has different ways to think about solving problems or have difficult conversations. She's really helpful for you. Maybe your favorite football team is looking for a new coach. And uh, you, you want a you coach that can recruit the best players and hire the best coordinators and get all the X's and O's right, but also build a culture build a program. You see, Jesus as this king unveiled in Isaiah 11 checks all the boxes of somebody you'd be looking for to give your life to. He has all the experience, he has all the qualifications, and he has the spirit-empowered divine mission to reign over this world and to make it right. But like I said before, qualifications aside, many of us just don't want to follow a king because we don't want to follow anything. But if you, if you peel beneath the surface I think it's true that we all serve something. If, if we, you think about your life as a, as a bet that you're placing uh, with the highest maximum upside, and maybe you're diversifying it and spreading it across a couple of different sectors, but ultimately we end up kind of placing our bets on some version of what we'll, we think will give us personal fulfillment or the best societal benefit, and, uh, and we take all these different gambles with our own lives because we only get one. You take a relationship gamble and you think, you know, I need a new relationship. Uh, I, want a, I want to get married or I want a boyfriend or a girlfriend or I want children or I want grandchildren or I need this relationship in my life that will make me happy, that will give me meaning where I can experience love. Or you take this education gamble. You're going to take out some loans. You're going to get another degree. You're going to make it, you know, you're going to focus on your coursework this year. And if you get everything done well and you get all your ducks in a row, things are going to work out for you. Or there's the lifestyle gamble, right? I'm going to cash out and move out of the Bay Area and get air conditioning. <laughs> I'm going to retire. I'm going to go part-time. I'm going to change careers. I'm working too much. I need to de-stress. And these are all just placing bets on what we think ultimately will bring us lasting satisfaction, like Kevin said. But you see, you and I would have been no different than King Ahaz if we were an ancient king several thousand years ago. We would have gone in league with Assyria because the data would have told us to go in league with Assyria. It was an informed decision. Uh, he would have evaluated, you know, done the SWOT analysis. He would have been trying to make the best decision. He was a good leader. He surveyed the options. And, and we're not that different. We're always beta testing our allegiances and our brands to see if this reflects the maximum upside with the investment of our lives, of our time, of our energies, and our devotion. And then it comes Isaiah 11 and gives this vision of Jesus, the eternal ancient of days, as the one king who's actually worth following. There is no one better with whom to trust your life than Jesus. He wears righteousness and faithfulness as a garment. It's a reflection of his character. It's who he is. They, they encircle him like a belt in verse 
5. This is ancient language of a king ready for war, ready for action. And it may not be in this life, but in the end, it's a promise. Good will defeat evil. The poor and the meek will have a fair hearing. In the courts of the Lord, there is no nepotism. There's no corruption. There's no bullying. The king cannot be bought, pressured, or filibustered. He wears righteousness as a garment. And he said, come and follow me. Trust me. And the upside of following this king is better than you can ever believe. And that's what happens in the second half of the passage. We see first who he is. Who is this king? What's he like? And then we see what will his kingdom be like when it's fully here, when it's finally and when it's realized. And this is where the prophet Isaiah invites us to kind of unlock our imaginations in verses 6 through 8. He doesn't say just baldly or plainly, uh, when Jesus comes to earth, when this king comes, it's going to be really good, so trust him because it's going to be good. It's worth it. Wink, wink. Instead, he says, hey, there's going to be a wolf and a lamb living together in like the same pen. It's going to be awesome. And, and there's going to be a leopard rolling around in the field, doing that arching back feline thing. And there's going to be a goat right next to him. And they're just going to be grazing on the grass together. And there's going to be a little child there leading them all. I love these images of animals at peace and in harmony. And, and for you kids there that are listening to this sermon, it, it can be hard to, to get excited to follow Jesus, to follow King Jesus when the picture is just, hey, be good and follow God because he's the best and, and you know, trust your parents or trust your Bible study teachers. I want you to see and hear how God describes the world that he's making, the world that he's creating, what the world is like. This is God's world is a world where, where lions have leashes and snakes don't bite. And, and this is a picture of paradise. This is language uh, that comes straight from the Garden of Eden. It's, it's echoes of God's creative order before sin and brokenness ruined the world. I don't know if the way you commute to church, that we always come up our Embarcadero and then, and then a left on Middlefield, and we always pass that, pass that sign of the gardens there. It's like, life is better in a garden. You see that when you, when you come in? This, this picture of hostility between creatures being taken away and of peace established. The world is a safe and harmonious place when King Jesus is on the throne. And you notice the, the theme of children, right? In verse 8, the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. The, the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. Uh, if, you've, if you've ever traveled to the airport with young children or you've been the lucky one that's watching the people traveling with young children, maybe you're traveling for business and you have your little rolly carry-on and maybe a computer bag and then you see the helpless parent like me with the stroller and the car seat and all the stuff and they have like two pieces of checked luggage per each kid and it is a crazy situation. Um, we've got so much stuff just to keep our kids safe. The car seats and the strollers and those little foldy things are like that you can change a diaper on in the middle of the dirtiest airport floor ever. We have all these things and we go to such great lengths to keep our children safe. But in God's kingdom, a nursing infant that's completely def- defenseless can be, can be rolling around a cobra's hole with no fear of being bitten. And, and a weaned child or a toddler coming out of, of you know, the quiet grace kids over here that's, that's kind of wandering out, that's clamoring for a lollipop from Miss Jess after the service, 
They can put their hand in the, the hole of a snake and not get bit. And of course, like these aren't literal depictions of Jesus's kingdom, but they're, they're images of what a kingdom when Jesus is on the throne looks like. In Christ's kingdom, the weakest people are cared for, provided, and beloved. The weakest people are safe. And this means, one, one thing this means for you and I, is that as participants of God's kingdom, as his kingdom is coming and being unfurled like a, like a rolling carpet, you and I uh, can actually care about who God cares about. <clears throat> Excuse me. We can um, <clears throat> care for children, for the aging, for people that do not have adequate housing. Uh, we have a new uh, Grace Cares director, Jacqueline von Reichbauer, who you met a couple weeks ago. And there are many of you doing wonderful things in our community in the name of Jesus. And our church wants to participate in the kingdom coming in Palo Alto and beyond. And this looks like caring for the most vulnerable and marginalized populations. This is what God cares about. This is what his kingdom looks like. And I think sometimes the promise of this future world of justice and peace um, can ring hollow to those of us who are more comfortable or happy with our life stage right now or what's going on around us, or maybe we're just more privileged and if that's, if that's how the text lands for you, I think we just have to ask the Lord to give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Help us to long for the glories that are coming that will make this present life uh, pale in comparison to what the kingdom of God will really look like. The, the promises of the prophets have been precious to Christians on the margins for millennia. Uh, I, you know, it was, it was from... The minor prophet, the book of Amos that, that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. regularly quoted, right? To, to um, let, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an everlasting stream. I don't know how many of you do your daily Bible reading uh, in the prophets, longing to look for justice, calling out uh, about the, the injustices you see, looking for Christ, looking for the King that is coming. But when you hear about the coming of King Jesus... We're, we're reminded of this truth that I said at the beginning, that these latent hopes and these desires that we have for change or for growth or for progress or for justice in our own lives and in our community, that these hopes are tied to a person. That the gospel teaches that Jesus is the answer to the world's problems. And of course, other, other ideologies don't say this. In your workspaces and in your neighborhoods and other places, uh, there's a narrative that says the problem with the world is we need more education. We need more exposure. We need more access. We need more training. And these things are not bad in, in and of themselves. But the root of the problem here is that we all are serving something. And if we're looking for peace without a peacemaker or justice without the king who wears righteousness like a garment, that there's going to be conflict of self-interest and different competing ideologies that will ultimately divide these marginalized groups between the haves and the have-nots. But that's not the case with Jesus. It's not, it's not true. When Jesus is on the throne, peace and paradise will be found. Heaven and earth will come together. Verse 9 says, For the, the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So what does our broken world really need? We need Jesus. We need our king back. And God says he's coming. There's a world coming where there's no crime, no hunger, no tears. Everywhere you, learn, everywhere you turn, people are, 
are laughing and working and playing and building and faces are shining and animals are galloping. And and how do we get there? We serve Jesus as king and participate in his kingdom. See, Ahaz was uh, faced with a choice, King Ahaz and Isaiah. Does he... Does he fortify his army? Does he build a coalition with other uh, well-positioned allies? Does he, does he look for security in exchange for trusting God? Who, who do you put your trust in? Where are you looking for, for safeness, for security, for peace? You really think that satisfaction will come from the right career or the right partner or to even lobby or mobilize people for legislative change? Again, these things are not bad in themselves, but they won't give you a peace that lasts. Peace comes in a person. Jesus wears righteousness like a belt, and he's doling it out. He's establishing his kingdom, and there's a place for you in it, a place for you to be known as intimately by God and, as, and by his people, to be covered in love as the waters cover the sea. And this vision that's given in Isaiah 11 may sound like pie in the sky to you. It may sound ridiculously fantastic. But here's the thing we must remember. It is not a fairy tale. It's prophecy. A prophecy means that God says this is true and it will happen. It's coming. This world, this Jesus, this kingdom is more real than the chair you're sitting in. And you are made for this kingdom. And you're welcome to come in and taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's pray. Our, our Father in heaven, we thank you for this vision, for this image uh, that, we, that we long for, that we were made for, that life is better in a garden, that we need a king who will stand for justice and who is the king of love. God, I thank you that this is not just vain hoping or the best thing we could think of or imagine to, to, to tell ourselves, to tell our children, to tell our neighbors, but this is, this is a coming reality because of King Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that we can, uh, by faith, participate in this kingdom and find our place and station in it. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.